Hey everyone, and welcome back to the show. Jessica Stevens here. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in to another Now What Wednesday. I am just so beyond grateful for each and every one of you who tune in each week to listen to our amazing guest stories and to participate in this community of like-minded people who are figuring their life out and moving forward and wanting change and wanting justice and wanting to improve your own world as well as the lives of others that you uh, encounter and love. So here we are at the end of February, and I am so grateful that today's guest was on the show with me. We had such a fabulous conversation, and I really wanted to showcase this episode this month during Black History Month as we touched on so many different topics as it relates to diversity, privilege, conversations about race and social justice and white supremacy, you name it, we kind of touched on all of it. And I'm just so grateful for them for joining me today. So without further ado, let's hear about today's guest. Sandia is a anti-oppression consultant who loves to sing and is obsessed with tea, drinking, not spilling. Their new book, Rebel Despots and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free is now out and available on Amazon. And if you're a fan of the cartoon Avatar, The Last Airbender, you might want to check out their new podcast, Bending to Towards Justice, Avatar The Last Airbender for Global Majority. So without further ado, let's get to the now what. Have you ever had a situation happen in your life that you weren't expecting, good or bad, and said to yourself or out loud, oh my gosh, I just fill in the blank, now what? Me too, friend, me too. I've had quite a few actually, and in the moment, I never knew what I was gonna do next. Of course, I had to figure it out, sometimes the hard way, but I did figure it out. So join me and some amazing guests this season as we all share our own I just blank now what stories so we can all learn from their transformational lessons to help us all answer that lifelong and often paralyzing question, now what? Hey friends, are you having a I just feel sluggish now what moment? Me too. And when I'm feeling a little low and need to pick me up, I turn to the Arbonne 30 Days to Healthy Living program to help me reset. It's not a diet, it's a lifestyle. The 30 Days to Healthy Living acts as a reset in establishing healthy habits so you can get more energy and feel fit with clean vegan nutrition. Arbonne's mission is to empower people to flourish with sustainable, healthy living. So the 30 Days to Healthy Living set and program are specifically designed to do just that. It helps you identify foods that might not be serving your body well, while you focus on adding nutrient-dense, plant-based whole foods into your daily routine, creating sustainable habits for a healthy lifestyle that lasts. So if you want to get started on your path to healthy living with our number one nutrition set featuring nine plant-powered products that make healthy living easy, head over to jessicastevenstoronto.arbon.com and click on the Healthy Living tab and check out the program. Join me each month as I help dozens of people feel fit and their best with this amazing program. It's definitely not a diet, it's a lifestyle. And if you want to live well and feel fit, join us on the next 30 Days to Healthy Living. So head over to jessicastevenstoronto.arbon.com, check out that Healthy Living tab, and let's help you go from feeling sluggish to feeling great. 
Well, good morning, Shonda. Good morning, Jessica. How are you doing? It's been so nice to see you. It's so, it's been a while since we originally connected. So excited to have you on the show finally. A lot has happened. <laughs> yeah, for both of us, I think. For both of us, yeah. It's it, it's been a wild ride, but here we are. You know, new year, <laughs> new 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 things going on, and brightness on the horizon for everybody is what I'm hoping. Absolutely, absolutely. Next. We deserve it. Yeah, we do. We do. All right. So we're having a very interesting conversation today, and it is your story of realizing some privilege that you had or have that you were not fully aware of until this situation happened to you. So like me, you are a biracial person, and that brings a whole complexity of things in our lives. And um, yeah, like you, I found myself in some spaces where I kind of realized, oh, well, this is different. Right. <laughs> or, oh, I'm hearing right. some things that I don't think they realize that I, I'm who they're talking about. So rewind right. the tape for us and take us back to, I think it was a dinner party you said was your situation. Take us back, yeah. you know, what was going on? Yeah, well, and I think it's worth laying out just a tiny little bit of groundwork before that. So my father is, was from India, right? A small mm-hmm. village in India. My mother is from Scotland, from from Glasgow. Both came from pretty humble origins. Really adorable, cute meat story. I was born in England and we moved to the States when I was a toddler. So two things were true of my growing up. One was that immigrant kid from Asia landing in Akron, Ohio at a time when Asians were seen as the problem in the Rust Belt, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because back then there was a sense of, we used to have this strong economy, we used to build tires, we used to have great jobs, and then the Asians took over the auto industry and destroyed everything. So not an easy entry into the country, because I was not unfamiliar with bullying, because I was part of the problem, right? So I was aware of the ways in which I was different. I was aware of the ways in which I didn't belong. And also, I grew up in a community where the racial dynamics were very black and white. And I was lucky enough to have parents who leaned into, when you don't know where to stand, stand with the people who are struggling. So I had kind of an innate understanding that, you know, civil rights mattered, that solidarity with black people was part of what it meant to be a brown person in the United States. I also was aware of the fact that my life was considerably easier than my black friends in Akron. So in some ways, I thought I understood both the challenges I faced, the marginalization, and the privilege, right? I thought I understood those because I understood the politics of them. I was in my, and in fact, I did organizing work. I worked for an organization that did religious liberty work that worked on racial justice. That was my career. I went back to grad school in my mid-20s. I actually went to seminary to become a minister and was surrounded by amazing people who cared about the world, who wanted to make the world a better place. And I ended up at a dinner party with some of the people from my class. I was the only person of color in that particular group. And at some point, Some issue related to race came up and I suddenly realized everybody at the table was saying they when they meant people of color. And it was this strange moment where I thought, oh, they have forgotten who I am. My race has become invisibilized. Maybe I've become invisibilized. 
but I'm having this weird experience of getting to hear what people say when people of color aren't in the room. And even in that moment, I hadn't put two and two together. But the next day I was talking with my friend Ayana, who was also part of our group. She's African-American. And I said, Ayana, do you ever have a moment? Do you ever have moments when you're in this particular seminary where people forget you're a person of color and start doing the inside conversation? And Ayana looks me straight in the eyes and she's like, no, that never happens to me. That has never happened to me. That will never happen to me. And it was this moment where I was like, oh, right. That's one of the ways privilege shows up in my life is I certainly do experience marginalization, partly because of my name, partly because of Sometimes people read me as a person of color, but also I'm incredibly light-skinned, and sometimes people read me as white. I can disappear into whiteness if I want to, to a, to an extent. And it was this painful moment of thinking, but I know who I want to be connected with. And so privilege felt like a way that I was losing who I was. So that was kind of the distinguishing moment for me. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about what I've, how I've made sense of that since then, but that's mm-hmm. definitely the moment where I realized the notion I had of, yeah, some people have it harder than I have it, shifted to a much more personal, oh, I potentially benefit from the way things are structured, right? Yeah, that is definitely an aha moment. And for sure is. When, did it feel a little bit like a punch in the gut? Like I said, it wasn't the when the party was happening. When the party was happening, I was like, well, this is weird. Is it worth bringing up? Should I just see what happens? So it was more an observational puzzlement. It was the next day when I talked with Ayana and realized, oh, that is not because we're surrounded by progressive white people that we're having that experience. That was absolutely about my privilege. I think gut punch might be might be the right word and a sense of loss of connection or a sense of loss of connection to the people I love and consider myself accountable to. What was that like? What was that like realizing that that connection was not as strong as you, you envisioned it and believed it to be, you know, that maybe they, they also see you very differently than you see yourself. Those, yeah. those people who you are aligning with and wanting to be an ally with. Right. Well, and it's interesting because I think I was really lucky. There was another person in seminary with me, Paul, and he was also mixed race. And he's, his father's black, his mother's white. And I had a conversation with him not, longer, not long after the one with Iana, where I said, here's what happened. Here's the conversation I had with Ayana. And Paul said to me, right, maybe God gave you that privilege so that you could advocate for your people. There's a story. If You don't have to be religious to find this story compelling. There's a story in the Bible about a woman named Esther and her, she was a consort to the king. She was Jewish, but didn't read as Jewish. And the advisor to the king hated Jewish people, wanted to completely eliminate them. And Esther's uncle comes to her and says, listen, you have the power to influence the king. And if you don't, we might get completely wiped out. I know that you can pass for not Jewish. I know that you could continue to survive until they find out you're Jewish. 
but you need to show up for your people. And actually he, what he says to her is not that different from what Paul said to me. He says to her, if you don't help us, God will show up for us in another way. But perhaps you were put in this position for such a time as this. And so it's interesting. I've discovered that that phrase for such a time as this has become kind of the calling card, kind of the slogan of a lot of people I know who are connected to oppressed communities and also benefit from privilege as long as people don't know that they're connected to those communities. It's kind of our call of accountability to each other. And I think that most of us have places where we experience marginalization or oppression that might be around gender or culture or class or caste or race. And most of us also have places where we have a certain amount of privilege as well. And so this notion of it doesn't mean you're not in the community. It means you've got certain access and certain possibilities for yourself that you get to leverage on behalf of the community that doesn't have that access and doesn't have that leverage. So what started as kind of a moment of disconnection, of sadness, of, oh, I'm not really a person of color because sometimes I get read as white, but also when I'm in the room with the white people and they're saying they, I know they're talking about me, so I'm not white either. This sense of homelessness that I experienced in that moment, as I got to have conversations with other people who were thinking about the same things, I realized, oh, no. In some ways, if I use it right, this is a gift. I mean, every gift can be used for good or for bad, right? So it's a gift and I get to choose how I use it. Wow. That was, that, that's a big revelation. <laughs> and, th- and, and so grateful for that friend, Paul, who was like, yeah. you're Esther. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and the interesting thing is at this point in my life, My full-time work is doing diversity, equity, and inclusion work with corporations, with nonprofits, with institutions of higher education, and with religious institutions where folks are getting serious about creating racial equity in their institutions. Mm -hmm. And what's really lovely is I think my favorite thing about doing my work these days is I get to help all sorts of people recognize where they have power that they didn't realize they had power. And instead of feeling ashamed or embarrassed of that, to help them realize that for them also, it's potentially a gift because that's what allows us to show up well for the people we care about. Absolutely. So at the time, were you actively working in the DEI space? Was that what you were studying? Like, I know you were in seminary. Like right. what, what was kind of like your professional environment at the time and how did that experience, you know, maybe nudge you down a different path or nudge you a little bit more in this direction than another direction that you were considering going? What was, was that like a turning point moment of like, okay, I have this privilege. It is my superpower. It is my tool. I must use this for good. Let me go and do this. You know, it's interesting because, like I said, growing up in Akron, Ohio, where the dynamics were very much black and white, when I was in fourth grade, we read about Martin Luther King, and they mentioned in the in our textbook that he had been influenced by Mahatma Gandhi. I knew who Gandhi was because, 
you know, my father had taken me to the movie Gandhi when I was in first grade. And so when I read that, it was the only reference I had ever seen anywhere to South Asians. And so when I read that, I realized, oh, if Martin Luther King was into Gandhi, I guess Martin Luther King's my guy, because I don't have any guys in this particular narrative in this country. And so that notion of solidarity with the black community actually was part of my life from that age. When I went to college, I interned for my congressman and ended up working for him. He was one of the people who helped establish Martin Luther King Day. Part of the reason I wanted to work for him is he was working to address the fact that People in certain neighborhoods in Akron died 10 years younger than people in other neighborhoods, and that that was completely about black neighborhoods versus white neighborhoods and what people had access to in terms of health care, in terms of environmental well-being. So, And then went to work for the Interfaith Alliance, which was an organization that fought for the rights of religious minorities and for racial justice and for LGBTQ inclusion. So What's interesting is the through line of my entire career was absolutely about racial justice. What made that moment so significant is it helped me recognize the much more nuanced ways I could show up in that conversation. And that meant that a lot of people who experience resentment or ambivalence or shame around the ways that they carry that combination of privilege and marginalization, I can help them because I've been through that same journey. And it turns out that there are a lot of things we can do to kind of clear that psychological cache of garbage that we've collected over the years so we can show up better. We can show up as our whole self. We can show up unapologetically and humbly, both at the same time. I think that's what that moment did for me was caused me to do the same work and to do it very differently. I love that. And you raise such a really important point for all of us who are biracial, mixed race, who, who straddle the lines, right? Are everything and nothing, right? And that, that is actually a true superpower because, you know, when I was growing up being biracial myself, and there was, I, th- I remember there's like an episode of Oprah, right? And she, it was, it yep. was, it was talking about race and it was talking about whites, blacks, Hispanics, and Asians. And, yeah. you know, and, and then they were like dividing people into these quadrants and, and whatever. And I, and I, I, that was like my aha moment of like, right. I, I am none of those things and I am all of those things. Right. And so right. where do I fit in was the first question, right? As of any, anyone who's biracial is like, where do I belong? But then right. my second was, I actually belong in all of those spaces, right? And being able to be the messenger and bring knowledge and information from those other quadrants to this quadrant and help educate and be the voice was yes. definitely something that I realized like, oh, that, that is what I can do. I can help people, you know, I can bridge the gap. I am the bridge. And I've always said, this is, you know, people who are biracial, we are literally the links from one culture to the next. We are the things that connect 
connect connect to groups or three groups or however many it is. I personally am a mutt, so there's so many things in me that I'm connected to. But yeah, that is that is the superpower that you have. That is the privilege. And it's interesting because it is a distinct experience, right? Mm-hmm. Being being mixed race. And there's also something and it's funny because I have also had conversations where I sometimes get really excited about characters who are bicultural or biracial and will sometimes talk about that on social media. And almost always one of my African-American friends will be like, yeah, listen, to be African-American is to be mixed race. You're not that special. And on the one hand, I'm, I'm a little cranky about it. And on the other hand, it is, an, it is a legitimate point. Mm-hmm. And so Maya Angelou had an interview once with Bill Moyers. This is back in like the early 70s. And she said something that I came across in a book years later, and she she had a response to a question he had about where she belonged. And she said, and I've got the quote in front of me, if it's all right for me to read it. Um, She said, well, at some point, you are only free when you realize you belong no place. You belong no place. You belong every place and no place at all. And then she says, the price is high. The reward is great. And I love that quote so much. I have shared it in so many multiracial spaces. I have shared it with so many people who are immigrants and the children of immigrants. And I was working with a group of young artists. They were, they were part of a fellowship. And I was invited to come in and talk with them because I'm also a writer. And I shared that quote with them because they needed a writing prompt for that particular class. And I said, here's this quote that's been getting me through. And their reaction to it was the opposite of mine. And these are all people of color and they're almost all queer identified. And they were all 15 years younger than me. So they were kind of middle of millennial, whereas I'm the tale of X. And they were angry at that quote because their whole focus was finding belonging. And so this notion of not belonging was something they were resentful of, frightened of, felt that they deserved belonging. And whereas for me, my experience had been, I'm never going to belong. Isn't it liberating to find something good about that? And so I think that there are different people who come at this with different longings. Mm -hmm. And that shapes how we engage the work for sure. But for me, I found it profoundly comforting to be told belonging might not be the only thing to look for because I do fall between two worlds. I am never white enough and never Indian enough. And at the same time, I get embraced in both communities fully uh, Mm -hmm. at times. And a lot of that has to do with how I show up in those spaces. Yeah, it's it's you. It's it's not it's not your race. It's not your biracialness. It's you. It's you that's how you are in those spaces exactly because another biracial person with the exact same mix as you could show up in those spaces in a completely different manner in a completely different way and not exercise their privilege for purpose of good right or even be aware of their privilege or be embarrassed of their privilege those things also get in the way and i think that's one of the things that's true for all of us is acknowledging that privilege doesn't make it worse, it means we get to show up differently as a result. Um, And I think that's part of what matters about this conversation to me. Yeah. And not everybody has the tools to know how to use their privilege. Right. Right. Because 
Privilege can is kind of a, a bit of a blunt instrument unless yeah. it is then powered by the right intention and motivation, right? It needs to get plugged in with with the right source to actually work work its magic. But otherwise it could just it could be used in another very different way. Yeah, I love that. So I like you, I'm like, I'm a crossover. And either you refer to me as like a elder millennial or right. like the last of the Xers, right? I'm a very big fan of the term Xennial. That's the term I use. Oh yeah. Cause I'm like really, I'm an, I'm an eighties baby. So like I am so right. 76 to 84 is a subgroup that sometimes called, is called Xennial, which, cause I have more in common with people who were born in 1984 than people who were born in 1965 or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I swing both ways too. Right. Just like I'm biracial. I am like, I am multi-generational. Sometimes I'm a millennial and sometimes I'm a Gen X. Right. Um, And I I get to swing, swing the other way, whatever, whoever I'm with. But uh, yeah, I can see how the younger generations would rub up against that quote. Yeah. And feel as though you're telling me that I shouldn't belong somewhere. Right. Right. Versus the liberation that you felt of, I don't belong. And that is completely okay. Right. Right. And I think some of it is, some of it also has to do with what we think we have the right to versus what we've learned to live with. And that's kind of the poignant and sad part of it, right? Is for me to get to that place means I've accepted I'm never going to belong in that sense of the word. Whereas, of course, for, of course, for the people I was talking with, they were like, No, the whole thing I'm fighting for is to belong. It is wrong that I don't get to belong. It's wrong that I'm not accepted as fully who I am. That's the problem. I'm not the problem. And so I get where they were coming from. It just took me aback because I thought we have so much in common. We're queer. We're artists. We're people of color. We're going to find the same solace. And that was absolutely not true. Yeah, it's it's interesting what the, the research brings back. The, it, our <laughs> hypothesis is this, but what yes. is reality is very, very different. So I like to ask this of all my guests. Now what? What is going on? <laughs> what has, what you know, we talked a little bit about how that experience kind of yeah. was part of your through line experience, but what now what? What's going on with you? What are you working on? You know, yeah. what what's happening? Well, you know, it's funny because I hadn't even made this connection. I knew that question was coming, obviously, because I listened to the show. But until you asked it, I hadn't realized. So my next book, it's coming out on MLK Day. It's called Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. And my very shorthand for it is how connecting with our ancestors can equip us for the work of dismantling white supremacy. But or and part of what drove me to write that was I do a lot of community organizing work in Oakland, California, and I have seen how the activists and organizers, particularly of color, who ground themselves in practices that connect them to their ancestors are much less likely to burn out, have greater emotional resilience, have tools to keep them in the work for a long time. And I wanted to share that with a broader community But also, I, you know, I live in two worlds, right? I do my DEI work predominantly in secular spaces. I also do a lot of work in religious spaces and predominantly white religious spaces. Most of my organizing is in communities of color. Most of my religious work is in predominantly white spaces. 
And I was struck as I began to have these ancestor conversations with the progressive white Christians in my life. They had really painful relationships with their ancestors, some of them. Some of them didn't know the stories of their ancestors. And they thought that was distinct to them being white, right? I have enslavers as ancestors, or I'm a mutt, I'm part German, I'm part Irish, I'm part English, I'm part Welsh, I'm part French, I'm part Scandinavian. Who are my ancestors? And and they were kind of like, right, so that book's going to be helpful for people of color. What's it going to do? It's not going to be useful to us. Um, and it was fun to get to. Yeah, exactly. I, I Sadly, the listeners can't see the look on your face. So it was kind of fun to be like, oh, also, in the same way that my black friends are like, you're not actually all that special. For me to be able to say to my white friends, actually, you're not all that special. Do you think people of color don't have complicated ancestors? Do you think that people of color all know their ancestors? You may have heard of a thing called the Middle Passage, right? There are a lot of people who have had their ancestors taken away from them. Indigenous people who, you know, our policies were trying to eliminate Indianness from them. All of us have complicated ancestors. All of us also have access to cultural ancestors and movement ancestors and spiritual ancestors that offer us the strength to navigate the complexities of this world and to give us the strength to stand for justice in the face of oppression and even fascism. So I think the way I engaged that this particular book was very much born of my sense that I do continue to want to play a role in all of the spaces, among all of the people who care about racial justice in particular, in the work of all of the people who have a vision for what Dr. King called beloved community. And so that next book has a lot to do with my commitment to showing up well alongside white allies, as well as people of color, in ways that are always accountable to people of color. And I think that's a big part of the shift that happened all those years ago, where I realized, oh, I could move through the world in ways where my life is easier because I can pass. Or if I choose not to make a big deal out of my cultural identity, which sometimes Asian people and light-skinned people of multiple types can get away with. You're acceptable as long as you don't make any noise. And to have that moment where I realized I have access to certain spaces, and when I'm in those spaces, I always want to show up in ways that are accountable to people of color, whether that's my people or other people of color, that's a choice I get to make, and that grounds me in a sense of who I am. And you know what is interesting is I think a lot of mixed-race people, and particularly light-skinned ones, have a lot of anxieties around where we belong, right? And some of those anxieties are stirred by white people saying they don't think of you as a person of color, or sometimes people of color saying they don't see you as a person of color, or any number of other versions of that. I discovered when I chose to acknowledge my privilege and to stand in community in ways that are accountable to people with less privilege, a lot of that noise went away. It didn't matter as much if somebody told me what they thought of my cultural identity, because I knew who I was and I knew who I was showing up for. So for me, I think that has relieved some of the anxiety that sometimes comes along with being mixed race.
Mm-hmm. Yes, in absolutely. any of its manifestations. Yeah. It, it, cause it's kind of like that shadow effect, right? Oh, like, oh, owning the portions of you that you yeah. subconsciously want to disown, right? Like you're like, yeah. no, I can pass as white, right? Yeah, exactly. I need to own that and yeah. no longer be ashamed of that, right? but just use it for good purposes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, that whole disassociation and the, the whole, you know, wanting to like, oh, I'm not a messy person. And, right. or I, and, and, and that whole thing with, with Debbie Ford and the shadow effect, I think that applies right. very much to this, the racial angle of it too. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for that. So what's the name of the book? So the name of the book is Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free coming out from Chalice Press on Martin Luther King Day. I am very excited. Yay, yay. So I, well, based on the recording date, yeah, it's coming up, but this episode is after that. So it's now out there in the world. that's fabulous. Yay. So the link to the the book is in the show notes. Go grab that, everybody. Thank you, Chandra, so much for being on the show with me. Any final words that you want to share with the audience? I think the the last thing I want to say is, you are powerful. You don't have to be ashamed of it. You don't have to be afraid of it. You get to use it to make the world a better place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone, that is it from us today. If you resonated with this episode, please give it a like, a share. And if you feel that this episode could help somebody else who is experiencing maybe something similar, please share it with them because it just might help them figure out their own now what. Okay, that is it from us. But if you are a patron, join us over at patreon.com backslash I just blank now what because Shonda and I are going to continue this conversation. I got some extra bonus questions for her that she's going to answer. So if you want more of this conversation, head over there, become a patron and you can access all the behind the scenes conversations with all my amazing guests. Okay, that's it from me today. And we will see you next week for another episode of I Just Blank. Now what? Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it more than I can say. Did you love this episode of I Just Blank? Now what? If you did, be sure to subscribe on your fave podcast platform. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review. I do love reading them. And if you know somebody who's experiencing this story or something similar, please share this episode with them. It just might help them figure out the answers to their own now what questions. Have you recently had a now what moment and aren't sure what to do? Reach out to me at jessicastevens.ca and submit your story and I'll help you figure out what to do, how to move forward and help you answer now what. See you on the next episode.